Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Gallery of Great Battles sits in the south wing of the Palace of Versailles. Among marble columns and gilded stucco, its walls are lined with over 30 giant paintings of famous French military victories. One depicts the Battle of Fleurus in 1794, when the French army defeated a coalition of European foes who wanted to overturn the revolution. It's a typical battlefield scene, a French general sitting atop a rearing white horse, leading his bayonet-wielding troops on another charge, the enemy soldiers fleeing in disarray. But to the top right of the painting, almost hidden in the cannon smoke-filled sky, is a floating white orb. It's a spy balloon, the first known use of one, deployed by the French to track the movement of the enemy forces. It looks strikingly similar to the Chinese spy balloon that traversed American skies last week. I'm John Prudeau and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what do America and China want from each other? If China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country. In his State of the Union speech earlier this week, Joe Biden promised to deal with any threat from China. A relative detente between the two superpowers has been endangered by the appearance of the Chinese spy balloon above Montana. The mood in Washington is hawkish. The House voted unanimously to condemn China for the incident, and a new select committee may further undo the recent efforts of Biden and Xi Jinping to play nice. What's next for Sino-American relations? With me this week to discuss what America and China want from each other in 2023 are Charlotte Howard in New York and Idris Kaloun in Washington. Charlotte, what's happening in New York? Do you have any more bagel news? We had a lot of letters from readers about the great DC New York bagel off. I have eaten bagels since we last spoke. That's my big news. Idris, what news from the district? Well, it's a very balmy day, uh, which is kind of nice, but also a bit alarming. It's 66 degrees, or I guess that's 18 for you, John, which I guess counts in London as like a summer day. Midsummer, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so that's nice. 
what what else is going on? I don't know. You've had the State of the Union to chew over in addition to your, your bagels. You had the State of the Union, which was, uh, which was... I just would like to note that the weather is more interesting than the State of the Union to you, Idris. <laughs> well, you know, John and I were talking about this, but State of the Union coverage... John, I think I'm just appropriating your words here. But you, you said that it often has the tenor of theater reviews more than it does a sort of serious policy now. And, you know, the speech itself, I, I think actually Biden exceeded the low expectations that people had for him. He seemed like a like he was able to communicate what he wanted to communicate. And he was able to ad lib as well about Social Security in a way that felt, uh, you know, genuinely clever. He also had some harsh words on China, which is the subject of our episode this week. So looking forward to getting into it with you both. Yes, he did. And thank you, Charlotte, for bringing us so deftly back to the point. On Thursday night, Republicans and Democrats in the House joined forces to unanimously vote to condemn China for its spy balloon. And one of the first things that the House did when it convened last month was vote to establish a new select committee on China to examine all aspects of the US-China relationship. Earlier this week, I spoke to one of its members, the Republican Darren LaHood, who represents Illinois' 16th congressional district. There's a little bit of beeping in the background at one point. There was a machine making a funny noise in his office, but hopefully that won't bother you too much. If you look at the vote that created the select committee, we had over 100 Democrats support Republicans on it. And I think that shows that there's bipartisanship in the Congress with Republicans and Democrats as we look at the malign activities of the CCP and we look at the opportunity to engage with our like-minded allies around the world to be in a better position for the United States. In my history in the Congress of being involved in this space, I tell people China has a plan to replace the United States and they are working at it every single day from a technological standpoint, a military standpoint, an economic standpoint, a diplomatic standpoint, and the quicker we wake up to that, the better. This committee provides us an opportunity, and again, a bipartisan way to look at how we build consensus on the threat posed by the CCP and develop a plan of action to defend the American people, our economy, and our values. I don't look at this as a Republican or Democrat issue or a philosophical issue. I look at it as an American issue. And balloons aside, what's your assessment of how well or badly the Biden administration has handled US-China relations so far? First of all, uh, on the economic side, I think we have been woefully deficient in the Indo-Pacific region when it comes to engaging our like-minded allies. We're two years into this administration and we have no trade proposal, no ideas that engage, uh, again, our allies. Our allies in the Indo-Pacific region are craving our leadership. They are in China's backyard and they want us to be engaged. And the Biden administration hasn't done that. Um, if you look at IPEF, which is their framework, it has no authority. It doesn't address market access. It's non-binary. I don't think the Biden administration has put us in the best position possible. Diplomatically, I know that Tony Blinken uh, was going to go, obviously, to Beijing to meet with the leadership there, that got postponed. But I don't think they have been as forceful or as direct that they need to be on holding China accountable. Almost, you know, all Americans and, and frankly, all of America's allies would sort of prefer if China had a different government. But nevertheless, it has the government it has, right? And so given that, and given it's not really within America's power to 
to change that, or at least not anytime soon. What sort of relationship do you think the United States should have with a China where the government in charge is a communist autocracy? So I think that's a fair question, and I don't know that there's an easy answer on it. But I would say this. If you go back to when China was brought into the World Trade Organization in 2001, the argument at the time was, let's bring China into the World Trade Organization. They're going to modernize. They're going to westernize. They're going to become more like uh, the democracies that are part of the World Trade Organization. They're going to liberalize. And my view 20 years later is they haven't done that. I think you have to separate the CCP from the Chinese people. Part of this committee, the select committee, you know, we're, we're, we don't want to disparage the, the Chinese people, but we are going to talk extensively about the malign activities of the CCP. The other thing that people tend to forget, but we will remind them of is Putin's number one ally in the conflict with Ukraine is Xi Jinping. He talked about an unbreakable bond a year ago prior to the invasion and has continued to stand by Putin's side. I mean, I think that's a reflection of, again, where the CCP and Xi Jinping is going. Uh, They're going the opposite direction. And so I think that needs to be talked more about. And and on the economic side, I will acknowledge we are intertwined uh, at every level economically with the Chinese. And many of my colleagues want to decouple. and, And that's easy to say much harder to do. How do we de-risk or decouple from China? I think that's where you have to have, you know, something like um, uh, some form of the TPP or a trade alternative to work with our allies on having a soft landing if, in fact, you want to decouple. But I just think that's not an option when you have China with a middle class of roughly 500 million. And uh, many of our industries in the United States are are tied directly to the economics. You mentioned the aspiration to treat Chinese people differently from the CCP and make clear that you know, the beef of members of Congress is with the CCP and not with the Chinese people. And that sounds exactly right to me. But it's really hard to do in practice, isn't it? Particularly given that any news about what's coming out of America is filtered in China through a very aggressive censorship machine. And I'm struck by talking to colleagues reporting there that sort of every time a member of Congress stands up and says something hawkish about China, whether it be on, on trade or on um, support for military support for Taiwan or the question of whether Chinese students should be allowed to come to U.S universities and you know study advanced scientific and technological subjects those that get then get picked up and used on the nightly news in china as examples of how it's clear that america wants to stop china's rise and is a sort of implacable adversary so i, I don't know how you break that kind of loop i don't think anybody's done it effectively but it's something that we definitely have to deal with i mean the chinese people are the primary victims of the ccp I mean, we'll attempt to expose how they target and oppress their own citizens at home and abroad. And so that will be part of our mission. It seems like the Chinese people don't care that much about it, or that's the perception. So I think we're going to think outside of the box as part of this committee on, again, I think partnering with our like-minded allies in Europe and the Indo-Pacific region has to be a part of it. Idris, you speak to plenty of Republicans on the Hill. What did you make of that? I thought what was interesting was 
you know, he shared, like a lot of his Republican colleagues, the sense that Biden had not been tough enough on China. What was interesting was his argument was rooted in a sort of lack of free trade deals. And that's kind of unusual, right? A, a lot of that is due to Republicans themselves, right? So if you remember back in 2015, you know, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton negotiated the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was supposed to be America's way of pivoting to the Pacific of, of, you know, a really big trade deal that eventually, you know, the undercurrents of the anti-globalist backlash were going on. Hillary Clinton backed away from that agreement in her primary. Donald Trump was obviously very critical of that. And that just changed the landscape of, of trade deals now. So in some ways, he's Representative LaHood is a bit of an old school Republican and saying that the, the answer to this is is trade deals. Yeah, I'm struck by that as well. I would note that he's the son of Ray LaHood, who led the transportation department under Barack Obama. And he represents the suburbs and exurbs of Chicago, which is an interesting part of the Republican establishment. So it's not like he's a far right entity. I think that it was really important to have his comments on the difficulty of decoupling, because one thing that I've been struck by is the degree to which it pays politically for everyone just to talk really tough on China. And you saw that in the response to the balloon where you had all kinds of people who are vying for the Republican nomination in 2024 saying that Biden wasn't tough enough. You had Nikki Haley saying it's time to make America strong again. And it just seems like being measured in general doesn't sell, particularly on the national stage. Maybe Obama was the last president of the 21st century who could sell nuance well. And I appreciated that Representative LaHood did try to add some realism to this conversation rather than just be bold and tough. It was striking that the median Republican response to the balloon incident seemed to be, or at least the responses that got the most attention, which is maybe a different thing, was, you know, the balloon should have been shot down sooner, right? What do you both think about this question that Republicans raise of whether the Biden administration or the Trump administration has been tougher on China? I've got a view, but I'd be kind of interested to know what you guys think first. So I think the Biden administration has been less tough rhetorically and much stronger in terms of its policies. So Biden actually hasn't rescinded the tariffs that Trump put in place on China. I mean, they're still there. And then he, with Democrats, have helped to pass these really big bills, as we've discussed on the show, the CHIPS Act, which is a direct response to China, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes lots of measures to try to reduce America's dependence on green energy equipment and green energy minerals. And then lastly, you can see in some of the restrictions that the Biden administration has put in place, particularly on exports of key technologies that would be crucial to the semiconductor industry, to Chinese defense. So the Biden administration has done a lot that I do view as quite tough on China, even though rhetorically, of course, Donald Trump is a more aggressive showman. Yeah, I think that's right. After Biden and Xi Jinping met in Bali in November of last year, there was a lot of hope that there would be a sort of detente between the, the two, particularly as tensions over Taiwan have gotten worse, particularly with uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit, which really irked the Chinese in a way that the balloon incident simply hasn't. And Blinken's visit, which got canceled because of the balloon, I think would have been a significant step in that way. He was supposed to meet not only his counterpart, but he had also arranged a meeting with, with Xi Jinping. Canceling that is a setback, quite a big one. I don't know if he does go to China anytime soon, whether or not he would have that same sort of access as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. 
Next, we're going to go back two decades to when a plane rather than a balloon caused a crisis between America and China and look at how that was resolved then. But first, the usual reminder, we'd really love it if you subscribe to The Economist, if you don't already. If you do, then thank you very much. It's because of our subscribers that we can make podcasts like Checks and Balance and our special series, The Prince, about Xi Jinping. Nothing will help you understand the life and the motivations of China's leader better than that podcast. So do go and listen to it if you haven't already. To become a subscriber, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. In one telling, the American naval reconnaissance plane was flying above the South China Sea on a routine mission in international airspace. Two Chinese fighter jets were tracking it, recklessly close. Too close. One of the Chinese pilots crashed into the larger American plane and fell into the sea. Badly damaged, the US aircraft sent out a mayday signal and headed for the nearest landing spot, the Chinese island of Hainan, only entering China's airspace as it flew to safety. Then there's another version of events. The large American spy plane shouldn't have been flying so near to Chinese territory. The smaller Chinese jets were monitoring it a safe distance away. When the lumbering US aircraft suddenly veered and rammed into one. Destroying it in midair and killing the heroic pilot. Without asking permission, the American plane landed on a Chinese airfield. Whether you believe the American or the Chinese account, the mid-air crash in April 2001 was a crisis, and it was an early foreign policy test for America's relatively new president, George W. Bush. We have been in contact with the Chinese government about this incident since Saturday night. What's not disputed is that the Chinese pilot, Lieutenant Commander Wang Wei, was killed and that the 24 American service personnel on board the plane were detained by the Chinese. Our priorities are the prompt and safe return of the crew and the return of the aircraft without further damaging or tampering. There was a standoff. America maintained the crew were innocent and should be released. The Chinese blamed the Americans and hinted at pressing charges. And then, 10 days later... Good morning. I'm pleased to be able to tell the American people that plans are underway to bring home our 24 American servicemen and women from Hainan Island. The crew arrived back at their base in Washington to a rapturous homecoming that was broadcast live on U.S. networks. These are people who have been waiting for many hours and the sight that they are seeing is making them absolutely giddy, absolutely proud to be Americans. The shouting is outstanding. The spy plane crisis of 2001 was resolved in a way that would be completely impossible now. David Rennie is The Economist's Beijing bureau chief and covered the story 22 years ago. And the deal that, that got them home 
was that George W. Bush allowed his officials to release a letter that apologised or expressed regret or sorrow for the death of the Chinese pilot and that was then translated into Mandarin in various sneaky ways to make it sound like an absolutely grovelling apology and an admission of guilt, which it wasn't. And then the crew went home. And the Chinese were willing to do that because they needed American support to do things like get into the World Trade Organization. They needed American support to host the Beijing Olympics, which they were desperate to do. And China was a much smaller economy than it is now. And so they did a deal. China arguably needed America more in 2001 than it does now. And attitudes in Washington were different then too. And George W. Bush was able to make this kind of not-apology apology to get the crew home, partly because American politics was just a lot less ferocious. That basically made the deal possible. That old idea of, you know, uh, politics stops at the border and, you know, you should allow a president free reign to run an, an international crisis still just about held true in 2001. I mean, imagine if there were a crew on the ground in detention right now and President Biden was going to have to get them home by apologising to China for a mid-air collision that America believed was China's fault. Can you imagine the kind of the din from Congress and the kind of the fury that you would see on the airwaves? It's a sign of the distrust and animosity that's grown between the two superpowers over the past two decades, that if a repeat of the 2001 spy plane crisis was to happen now, it would not be resolved so easily. Charlotte, we were talking a little bit earlier about Anthony Blinken's cancelled or postponed visit and about the Biden administration's approach to China relations. And it seems to me that in a way it's both more old-fashioned. There's more of an emphasis on diplomacy and an understanding that keeping lines of communication open is really important. And it's tougher, right? I mean, President Biden has repeatedly said, supposedly by mistake, that America would defend Taiwan, right, when the policy is meant to be strategic ambiguity and the president isn't meant to say things like that. Under the Biden administration, America has provided Australia with the technology for nuclear submarines. There's been lots of diplomacy with military allies in Asia in a way that, you know, no doubt feels a bit threatening to China. And then you add on that all the trade measures. I mean, the Biden administration has ratcheted up the pressure on China, I think, to a degree that's maybe not fully appreciated in the US. Yeah, I think that that's right. I absolutely agree with you. I enjoyed that history package, not least because it's always amusing to me to hear George W. Bush and how he's being recast as a master of eloquence and measured diplomacy. But I think that you're right. I mean, it's worth going back and, and just noting that in two decades, how far America in general, and specifically the Democratic Party, has swung on this issue. I, for various reasons, have gone back time and again over the past two years and reread Bill Clinton's speech, which he gave arguing for uh, China's place within the WTO. He argued that entry to the WTO would move China faster and further in the right direction, certainly more than rejection would, i.e. rejection from the WTO. So there was this idea that he put forward that if, quote, you believe in a future of greater openness and freedom for the people of China, you ought to be for this agreement. If you believe in the future of greater prosperity for the American people, you certainly should be for this agreement. And two decades later, that rationale is just absolutely in shreds. George W. Bush and his diplomacy in regards to this incident, I think you can see as a continuation of that attitude. 
from the Clinton era, which is that we want to have a healthy relationship with China. We recognize that it's a complicated one, but we are pushing towards a future of openness and broader shared prosperity. Now the competition has really ramped up explicitly. You see this remarkable set of policies from the Biden administration that are really in the if not 180 degrees from that articulated by Bill Clinton, then maybe 160 degrees. I mean, it's a very, very different set of policies and a different worldview. Yeah. One interesting parallel between the two incidents is that actually in the case of the spy plane, it nearly crashed. And there was a 25 minute period in which all the service members knew that they were going to have to do a landing in somewhat hostile territory. And they spent that time trying to get rid of and destroy all the sensitive military and intelligence hardware that they had on the plane. That included um, pouring coffee on their hard drives and uh, in some cases taking an axe to some of the materials in the hopes that the Chinese wouldn't be able to recover it. And, you know, a few years later, an article made the case that actually maybe the Chinese, that maybe these countermeasures had not been as effective as previously thought, and the Chinese had been able to reverse engineer um, quite a lot of useful intelligence about America's capability from it. And what we see with the balloon now is that now that America's recovered it, they're going to be analyzing the uh, instruments that were on that balloon, they're going to be able to tell what kind of information China was collecting. Um, and that might prove more useful to the Americans than whatever data uh, the Chinese were able to glean from this particular balloon expedition. You said a lot of interesting things just now, Idris, but my main takeaway is that all the times that I've spilled coffee on my laptop, it actually is possible to recover the files that I've lost. So thank you for that. I'm going to take that up with IT. But I don't really understand, Idris and John, maybe you can explain, what is the information that you think was gathered by this balloon? What are the types of secrets that can be picked up with this method of surveillance? To me, it feels very Dr. Strangelove or something. What actually could possibly be useful here? In the balloon case, obviously, we're still finding out what its utility was. It seems like it hovered over it was hanging over nuclear bases in Montana. Um, I guess we, we don't really know, but we'll be able to tell what they were measuring, I suppose. And I don't know how public they're going to make that information, but there, there will be utility in that. And, and America is also, uh, American diplomats are currently um, briefing uh, their counterparts across the world about this balloon program, which they say has been ongoing and, and has... Uh, hovered over the airspaces of, of various countries, not just, I think they said across five continents, uh, not just uh, American airspace. Idris, you're right. These balloons have been seen in other bits of the world, right? And China says they're meteorological balloons. So presumably you can tell by getting hold of one whether that's in fact the case or not. And that's quite useful in any sort of negotiation with China. And also the other sort of puzzle here that people have been asking is, well, what could you get from a balloon hovering over a nuclear site in Montana that you couldn't just get from satellite imagery? So it's a bit of a puzzle as to what's going on here, right? And presumably if you get hold of the thing um, and the equipment's not too damaged, you can begin to answer that question. Okay, let's leave that there for now and we'll hear from David again in a minute. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 
David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief and The Economist's Chaguan columnist. He's also my former boss when we worked in The Economist's Washington bureau together. He's the co-host of Drum Tower, which is our great newish podcast about China. I thought that we could steal him away briefly to tell us what the reaction over there has been to the balloon incident and how he sees US-China relations at the moment. It's been really revealing. So if you look at the main evening news that, say, a lot of older Chinese uh, would watch to get their news, they don't know that this balloon incident has even happened because it hasn't been on that yet. The government has issued various statements which have moved from being initially regretful when they still thought there was a chance that Secretary of State Blinker might come to being now sort of snippier, very much pushing consistent Chinese lines that China can't possibly be the one that has broken international law because it's the wicked Americans who are the people who consistently trample international law. But the sort of the dial, as you mentioned, of kind of nationalist outrage has not been turned up to 11. I mean, it's nowhere near kind of, you know, it's around sort of four or five at the moment. And what's fascinating is that as the kind of the most authoritative official news outlets either don't mention it or downplay it, the censors have allowed social media to basically turn it into a joke. And that is clearly a very deliberate campaign that... Uh, nationalists online have been encouraged and allowed to sort of swap jokey memes and little graphics and, you know, jokes about the balloon, because the whole idea is that the Americans are such scaredy cats that they overreacted ridiculously and used a kind of gazillion dollar fighter jet to shoot down uh, what the Chinese people are told is an innocent weather balloon. Yes, as you say, the Chinese government's been very clear it's a weather balloon. The American government seems equally clear that it wasn't. I enjoyed the statement on Chinese state media that the ins and outs of what happened are crystal clear and clearly do not allow room for distortion or smearing. But that notwithstanding, are you any clearer or have any of the sources you've spoken to been any clearer about what this thing is and what its purpose was? I have spoken to a well-informed American source who said that What was very distinctive and suspicious about this balloon is that it clearly was being steered and that when it got over sensitive locations like these nuclear sites in Montana, it stopped and loitered. And so at that point, the State Department summoned in the top Chinese diplomat in Washington, who's currently the Chargé d'Affaires, and basically read him the riot act and said, what is happening out there in the skies is absolutely outrageous. What on earth is this thing? It has to stop right now. What is revealing is that that Chinese diplomat knew nothing about it. And then when he said he would get an answer out of China, uh, basically came back with nothing useful. And so you see how the foreign ministry, at least, really didn't know very much about this. Your anecdote about the State Department calling in the Chinese charge d'affaires is so interesting because it gives you a little insight into what crisis management is like between these two great powers at the moment when something like this happens. Do you take from that that there is a process and that there's enough communication that if a worse incident were to take place, the two sides would be able to handle it without it necessarily escalating? Or do you take from that anecdote that you know, there really isn't anything workable in, in place at the moment. You know, the, the confusion of the Chinese foreign ministries rather suggests the latter. That's right. No, it's it's bad. And this has been something that has come up in my conversations uh, with American diplomats here in China for a long time now. There is a real frustration and a real fear, I think, on the American side and other allies that the Chinese military is consistently taking really, really big risks in terms of how aggressively it's intercepting foreign planes and ships. 
And when the Americans, above all, have tried to engage with the Chinese military and said, we need to establish rules of the road, there's been a kind of real refusal on the Chinese side, not just to kind of establish rules of the road, but even to have the kind of the hotlines that are supposed to allow the two militaries to talk to each other in a crisis. And so we realize that as so often in the China of Xi Jinping, the foreign ministry, the ambassadors, the diplomats who are supposed to be the messengers uh, that can get straight to the top, they're no use in some crises. And the, uh, the People's Liberation Army won't talk to their American military counterparts. And so as so often, you realize that actually all important decisions are taken by the closed circle around the supreme leader Xi Jinping. And David, just stepping back a bit, what do you think China wants from its relationship with America? I mean, reading your columns, the impression I get is that the official line is, we just don't want America to stand in the way of our peaceful rise or to mess too much with our kind of core interests in our backyard. But it's a bit more complicated than that, right? Yeah, so China is very torn because China has done very well out of some bits of the status quo. I mean, much of China's economic rise rested on opening to the West, opening to the capitalist world, and above all, over decades, opening to America. And in as much as China still needs some technologies and some investments and access to American markets, that bit of the old status quo, China is very keen to preserve. And so they will reach out to their friends in American business, they will reach out to their friends in American politics uh, and say, you know, these levels of tensions are very dangerous. We need to get back to a more realistic engagement like in the old days. And what they mean by that is a kind of business-first, trade-focused, pragmatic form of engagement that they were used to. The problem is that that's not the only bit of the US-China relationship now. And of course, you know, since the days of Bill Clinton kind of talking about engagement being a path to opening China up and making China more liberal and more like the West, there has been a gigantic kind of shedding of naivety on the Western side. And that suspicion of China, that new sense that China is in fact uh, on a path that is implacably opposed to the values and principles that America holds dear, that is now to China's immense dismay, basically trumping the, the powerful voices of the business community. So China's desire is to go back to those bits of the old relationship that they really liked and to thwart and divide those forms of kind of Western resistance, which is stopping China getting to where it wants to get. Charlotte, one of the things that strikes me listening to David is it's not clear what China can really offer the US, right? I mean, the Trump version of improving relations was that China could just buy more stuff from America and the trade deficit would disappear or, or at least lessen. But America is now saying, well, actually, China can't buy quite a lot of advanced American technology because that's a national security risk. And then on the human rights side, you know, the Biden administration rightly is comfortable with talking about human rights abuses in Xinjiang more so than the Trump administration was, which didn't seem too bothered by those. But the changes that America would like to see in China are so kind of fundamental to the way that China is currently governed that it's just it's hard for me to see what China is able to offer as some kind of olive branch that doesn't fundamentally transform China's system of government. I think that your inability to come up with an answer on that is a sign of just how entrenched and difficult the situation is. So you have 
both sides really digging in their heels. And you have the politics of this being very beneficial both in China and in the US for people to continue to dig in their heels and indeed to be even more aggressive. There are a few areas where I think the Biden administration would like more cooperation. Climate is one of them. These two giant emitting countries need to work together to think about how to tackle climate change. But right now, particularly in light of the events of the past week, that feels very, very difficult to try to advance. I think uh, you know China remains important in ratcheting down tensions with North Korea. Um, they're probably the most important other partner there. And in that case, America and China's interests are fairly aligned. There is a smaller um, issue as well that America would like to see cooperation on that wouldn't change China um, as a whole, which is on on fentanyl exports. The synthetic opioid that is killing tens of thousands of Americans a year, it used to be just exported from China. Nowadays, it isn't exported, but um, actually the precursor materials that are used to make it in Mexico are largely originating from China now. Before Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, there had been some cooperation with the Chinese um, to basically limit this, to to limit the sort of spread and scourge of fentanyl, um, and that stopped after after Pelosi's visit. Um, if tensions were to to ratchet down a bit more, you can imagine America and China cooperating on on drug policy. You could see some, I think, progress. It's also going to be interesting, Charlotte. I mean, the earlier we talked about the record um, value of trade between the two countries, which I guess, all things being equal, you'd expect that number to keep going up as the economies grow, but is another reminder of quite how entwined they are. And at the same time, you know, the Biden administration has this pretty ambitious plan, which which you've written about in The Economist in a recent cover story, to reindustrialize at home and decarbonize and become less dependent on China and Chinese supply chains. And so there's a pretty explicit effort there to become less China dependent. I guess the question that we're going to be looking at over the next year and and longer is whether it's actually possible for America to disentangle itself from from China economically, or or whether actually, though many Americans would say that's what they want to do, you know, their shopping habits say otherwise. Yeah, I think it's worth dwelling on that just for a second, because I think it's easy to speak intellectually about decoupling, but the reality of it would be so painful economically and felt across all corners of the economy. But just taking clean energy as an example, China controls 90% of the production capacity for six key parts of solar panels and batteries. Um, That's according to Bloomberg NEF, which keeps data on these things. And so if you think about what the Biden administration is trying to do in terms of reshoring more manufacturing of these components, the solar factories that are going to be built are going to use equipment from China. That leaves aside the whole separate question that the vast majority of minerals that go into batteries and solar panels are processed within China, that the that the capacity is all there. And it's not clear that America wants to have some of these giant processing facilities within its borders. They're dirty and create all kinds of questions for local environmentalists who are concerned of local environmental impact. So anyway, I raise that as an example of just how hard it is to try to move supply chains, even when there's explicit policy designed to do so. If you look at what companies have been saying over the past two years, when they talk about either friend shoring, so moving to countries with which America has close trade agreements, such as Canada or Mexico, or even reshoring, 
The vast majority of them say that they are doing this or have plans to do this, but it's a share of their supply chains. It's not 100%. So it's really in the early stages as companies think about how they may redesign their supply chains. It's happening, but it's not at all close to being a situation in which America is economically independent of China. What's interesting is if you look at you know what America has been doing in the Indo-Pacific, it's actually it's actually been more able to pursue uh, military alliances than it has uh, a sort of trade agenda that might uh, contain China. So the inability to pass trade deals means that um, you know TPP, which originally was you know America's baby, um, has now basically been taken up by everyone except America in the form of the CPTPP. Which China now wants to uh, has now applied to to join. If you contrast that to the strength that America has been displaying, I think it's been the cutting of, of new and uh, the cutting of new alliances uh, in in the Indo in the Indo Pacific. Obviously, the AUKUS deal with Australia uh, to provide nuclear submarines um, was was a big one and, and something that the Chinese didn't didn't like. And the strengthening relationship in, among the Quad countries, which um, are uh, India, Japan, America, and the U.S. Um, on the Pacific, are you know the beginnings of a military counterweight to China in in the Pacific. But America has been fumbling though at, at creating deeper trade agreements with countries in in the region aside from China, which is what you would need if you, you were to even think about um, this sort of deeper decoupling. That's right. And while all this is going on, we have the remainder of the year before the 2024 presidential election really gets going. And so there's a bit of a window now for the Biden administration to work on some diplomacy and at least get those communication channels over with China before America goes into a year where I think the anti-China rhetoric or the anti-communist party rhetoric at least is going to be pretty hot on on both sides. And there's certainly some potential for some rhetorical escalation there. Okay, let's leave this here for now. This is a topic we will come back to again before too long. I have a quiz for you guys before you go. It's a State of the Union themed quiz. Question one. Earlier, we talked about George W. Bush. In W's first State of the Union, he coined what famous phrase associated with his presidency? Access of evil. It was probably access. Yeah, that sounds right. You were so quick. That was quick off the mark, Idris. It was the access of evil referring to Iran, Iraq and North Korea. The full quote is states like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. Question number two. FDR's 1941 State of the Union address is famous for stating that everyone in the world was entitled to four freedoms. What are those freedoms? You're welcome to talk over each other. Idris, go. Uh, one is freedom from want. Um, freedom of fear is another one. Freedom from fear, yeah. Uh, what else? Charlotte, do you have any ideas? No, I do have an anecdote. My husband was on a plane this week sitting next to an economist reader who said... Who, who could not believe that my husband was married to the Charlotte Howard. and um, That's fame of a sort. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he said that he, he was complimentary on a few things and then said, though, I really feel bad for her each week during the quiz. And I want to just say for the record that I love these quizzes because I love getting to hear Idris, former high school Jeopardy champion, do his thing. And I have no pride at all associated with them. So I just want to sit back and let you answer this question. So you, you so so you have no you have no other. No, that's a, that's a, that was a broad <laughs> deflection strategy, which I thought was pretty good. 
The two other freedoms that we're missing are more obvious ones, I think. Life, liberty, speech, something. You've definitely, I mean, they're in there. But yeah, freedom of speech and expression. So, you know, that's oh, a very American okay. one. And then freedom of worship. Hmm. Um, so you began with the two more unusual ones that are most associated with the FTR, freedom from want and freedom from fear. If you guys listen past the credits, then we'll play the short excerpt from that speech where FDR lays those four freedoms out. Well, thank you, Idris. Thank you. And thank you, the Charlotte Howard, for being here. <laughs> you know, it's my pleasure, John. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. The Economist's China podcast, Drum Tower, will be giving its take on the balloon incident and how seriously it's changed US-China relations in their episode next week. If you like Drum Tower, Checks and Balance, or any of our other podcasts, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. There's a particularly good Babbage episode this week in which Alok interviews a robot, which I'd recommend. You can now explore our whole Checks and Balance archive, if you wish to do that, at economist.com slash checkspod. You can also get in touch with us via email. We accept hot takes on bagels and almost any other subject. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Okay, here's that chunk of FDR that we promised, announcing his four freedoms in his 1941 State of the Union speech. In the future days, which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want, which translated into world terms means economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world.